0: Welcome to King's Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, well, gang, thank you for uh, coming out. Um, Clearly, we went back to two services and not staying at three services because I don't want to. So (laughs) that's uh, the prayerful reason that we're not at three services still. Um, But we are excited about Charleston at six p.m. So. If you know someone that lives in Charleston, super simple. Just be like, hey, um, if you don't have a church home, go hang out with my friends, King's Church, um, tonight in Charleston. You'll love them. They're all racist, and you like that. So go visit them. All right. <laughs> Second, I am on Real America's Voice today, and that's on you know cable if you have it, uh, talking about Jesus stuff at 2 p.m. Um, actually talking about Passover and Easter and Jesus and the Garden, some of the stuff we talked about last week. Um, And then I also just wanted to thank the, the subway team for worshiping. I think prayer and worship is really important. You know, Jeremiah 29. It says for us as believers to do two things. It says for us to you know, seek the peace of the city that we live in and also to pray for it. Let me read the verse. It says this. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And we have this kind of... Um, dynamic that I hear spoken of a lot that's kind of like, well, New York is over. It's all over for New York, you know. Just move to Florida. Get into Santa's land as fast as possible. And I understand that. I understand that impulse, um, especially after paying taxes on April 15th. I deeply understand that. But also, this is the place where God has called us, so we have an obligation, and that obligation is not to hide out in church until Jesus comes back, right? That obligation is not just to live our lives and hopefully we don't get sown. Actually, the scripture orders us to seek the peace of the city and to pray for it, so that's a bifurcated idea. The one idea is that we're actively pursuing the peace of the place that we're called to live, and that second idea is that we're called to pray for it. So when we hear about people getting pushed off the platform onto the subway rails on the regular, right? It's not like a one-off experience, but it's happening regularly in the city we live in. Instead of just stepping away from the yellow marker on the subway, we as believers actually do something. We seek the peace of the city and pray for it. And so I thank you, um, team, for going in the subways and praying and and evangelizing, talking about the gospel. And I believe this week I have a um, a call with the Attorney General, um, Attorney General of the city's office to talk about um, things, faith things. And I'm gonna say, what I normally say is not, I'm not really gonna talk about faith things, I'm gonna say, hey, we should work on people not getting murdered. Like, forget about faith stuff, you don't worry about faith stuff, I'll worry about the faith stuff. We'll, we'll have you will focus on people not getting killed, let's do that. And um, I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with uh, some other city leaders and you know, the other pastors are asking questions that I frankly think are irrelevant for a pastor to ask a faith leader about whatever their spiritual journey is or faith stuff in the city. We do faith stuff, you know. The governing the government's job is primarily, first of all, that we can actually function here as individuals. So infrastructure, so the ability to go places and not die on the way, that's kind of fundamental, right? And so I, I just... Um, this one political leader that I'm on a call with this week is very on the on the opposite side of the aisle than me on all matters of philosophy and how actually to to help the city get safer. Uh, his idea seems to be to get more criminals on the street, lower bail, let more people out, and my idea is to not do that. So just pray that God would give me wisdom because I don't want to be like, you know, I'm not, I don't, don't want to get in fights with random people for no reason, right? but I wanna seek the peace of the city that God has called me to live in. And that is to say words with full of wisdom and life that God could use um, in this time. So, amen? Okay, those little tiny announcements and then wanna just again thank the team. Bethany and I weren't able to be there yesterday. We were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with the Amish people. The Amish people have the the reverse uh, facial hair that I do today, right? Instead of mustache and no facial hair. They have no mustache and lots of facial hair down into the neck area. It's, um, it's probably what compelled me to shave a mustache this morning, was being in the Amish land and not wanting to smell like I was there. So hence the internal impulse, Gabe. Right? <laughs> All right, last, um, last week we did Easter. The week before that we had a guest, but we've been on the story of David... And David has been called to be the king of Israel, right? We know that part of the story. He's been anointed to be the king of Israel. The word of God is with him. He's done some really cool things. And Saul, King Saul, has attempted to kill him. And this is a really interesting chapter that we're going to kind of quickly breeze through. Chapter 26 is almost a parallel to chapter 24. It's like the same exact thing happens. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we were in chapter 24. And again, Saul's hunting down David. He's trying to kill him. David spares his life, and then it happens again a second time. Last week we were on um, Nabal and Abigail, or three weeks ago. I I spoke about it, and then Bethany spoke about it, and Bethany spoke this message called Unconditional Respect, which I really highly recommend. It's on YouTube and Spotify and all of these kind of things. It's a really important message, especially if you're planning on getting married ever, um, or you are married. So that is pretty much everybody, right? So please listen to it if you didn't get a chance to it. Okay, here we go. We are looking at um, kings because our church is called King's Church, and we want to see what good kings did in the scripture, and we want to see what bad kings did. And this is one of those examples of bad kings, and Saul is trying to kill David. Now, I haven't really focused on this, but murder is bad, okay? <laughs> so I haven't really spent a lot of time or a message that murder is bad. It's one of those things that you're like, should I really spend time on this? The answer is yes, I should spend time on this, Noah, because allegedly we don't really think murder is that bad anymore in our country. In fact, there's a bill right now being passed in California, AB 2223, which allows babies to be killed out of the womb after they've been born, up to about 20 days. They're allowed to be killed by doctors and not criminally prosecuted at all right now. I have a lot of friends in California that are senior pastors that are fasting and praying and going to the courthouses to try to stop this legislation. Can we just fundamentally start with this idea? Killing is bad. (laughs) Like, we actually have to say that? Do we have to say it? Yes, because we've created with these sophistry arguments this world that you're not really a full human being unless somebody wants you. Like, that's what we've come down to. It's not like, oh, it's a living autonomous being that, does, that has its own unique genetic code that's in development. Guess what? We're all in development, right? The baby is in the womb, is in development. You are in development. I, hopefully, am in development. Um, killing is not a good thing. And Saul has this plan to kill David. And you have to think of the context of the scripture because David hasn't done anything even close to resembling any kind of capital crime at all. Is that correct? Like he hasn't done anything. He's actually only done things to benefit the king, but Saul tries to kill him because he is uh, uh, intimidated that this guy's the next up and coming guy. And We see this happening throughout the scripture. We see leaders that are kings or rulers or leaders that they want to murder the next generation down because they're afraid uh, their position of power will be lost. So they're insecure about their positions of power. And this happens with Moses, right? Pharaoh is like, let's kill all those Jewish babies because they're going to take over and I'm going to lose my position of power. Same thing happens with Herod, right? Jesus comes along. There's these prophecies about Jesus coming He's insecure about losing his positions of power. And so we start killing babies. And then here in our culture right now in the United States, I believe that, that God has a call and a purpose and a plan for um, people to see a, a, an incredible move of God where millions and millions of people get saved. And the demonic call has been the murder of the innocent. And so in the United States, we have about a million innocent lives that are ended every year. Uh, by the, the sin of abortion which is literally the worst possible thing one can do in a society. And if you're a lady and you've had an abortion and I'm sure there are those of you who are there. God loves you, and he wants to forgive you and walk you through that, and there's healing and restoration. He makes us brand-new creations in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we don't talk about sin because it makes you feel uncomfortable, right? Because there's a guy that's involved, too, and he would feel uncomfortable as well. But for those of us who say, okay, we've been doing really bad things in our society, and we're going to stand for God's word and his order and try to see... a, a." these things rectified in our time. One of the ways we do that is by declaring God's truth, and one of these basic truths is that the intentional and wrongful taking of a life is a heinous crime before God, and it always has been. It's um, it's the first great sin in the scripture when uh, Cain takes the life of his brother Abel because he's mad at him, because he's inconvenienced by his sacrifice when he makes him look bad, and oftentimes for, you know, about 99 percent of The abortions in the United States, they're abortions due to inconvenience. They're abortions due to this child will inconvenience my life and my plans and my desires. And uh, the, the scripture kind of is opposite in relation to that because it's the idea is that greater love hath no man than this, than he that gives up his life for another. And so the incredible... Expression of love is actually when you do the opposite. When you say, I'm not living for me or my stuff or my desires or my plans, but I'm actually living for you and your plans and your desires and your stuff. And then we have this incredible synergy that's created inside of the body of Christ, and we all flourish together, which is God's original intention. That's why he has borders and boundaries and all of those kind of things. But Saul is double minded. He's not sure what he believes. Two scriptures ago, not only did he uh, try to kill David. But once he realizes he, he was in sin, he repented and then decided like, it seems like a, about a month or two later, it's time to kill David again. Let's read this in two chapters ago. First Samuel 24, 21. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. If any of you I just I just jumped to scriptures that's what Saul said to uh, that's what David said to Saul and then Saul responded by saying yes and he called him my son and then a couple of months later he's after him again he's double-minded he's making grand commitments with oaths and the whole army watching him and then he's turning on the commitments he's made and going back into the same patterns of destruction that he's been in. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you're like, I make grand commitments to the Lord about this issue or this pattern or this sin in my life, and then it seems like a month later, I'm back doing the exact same thing. Have you ever done that before? Because I certainly have. A few of us out here, right, are not going to hell for lying. So I certainly have been (laughs) making grand commitments to God. Like, I will never, Lord, do this thing ever again, and then finding myself back in the same exact place. Saul is double-minded, and I want to talk this morning about double-mindedness, and double-mindedness is a very dangerous sin for the believer, and I find that many believers in our day and age walk in double-mindedness. Let's read James chapter 1, verse 5 through 8. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. How an incredible scripture. We need wisdom. I need wisdom. You need wisdom. God gives it to everyone. This is amazing. This is uh, the the leading and guiding of God through the course of my life. Phenomenal. Next verse, verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything at all from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's a really incredible scripture because it's it, it contrasts the two ways of God so distinctly. On the one hand, it's like God will give you anything you want, especially wisdom. Specifically wisdom, how to make it through life. He's going to give you it. He loves you. He's going to lavish wisdom on you. But if you doubt at all, you're a double-minded man. You shouldn't be asking anything from God at all. It seem extreme to anybody here. Like, can we just have a little bit of doubt and still get the wisdom, Lord? Can I still just have it be a doubting person? There's um, this Christian podcaster I follow, and he is always doing the Doubting Christian podcast. Like, it's a subtitle for his podcast, The Doubting Christian. I believe, Lord, but I'm always consistently full of doubt. I'm always second-guessing the the Bible. I'm second-guessing your word and your way. I'm second-guessing if you're really there. And so let's just look what the scripture says. It says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Isn't that crazy? God doesn't want your analysis, your doubts, your scientific method applied to him and plus his system. He's like, I'll actually give that person nothing. And we have, even in New York City, this movement, like this reasonable faith movement, that it's like, bring all of your doubts and keep as many as you want. When you leave, hopefully you'll be like 1% closer to God. And God's like, just so you know, that man will receive nothing from me. Zero. He's a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways, and he'll be tossed like the waves. He'll have no stability, no course, no structure. One day he's in, and the next day he's out. One day he's all in, making grand commitments. The next day he's chasing to kill the person that he just said he loved and was his son. Soren Kierkegaard is a, um, he's a 19th century, century philosopher, and he writes a lot about double-mindedness. And he says this, he says, he says a lot of Christians... Um, they desire the way of God for a reward, and that's double-minded. And I say, like, why is that? Like, why is that? Well, because if you're doing God's way just for the reward, if the reward leaves, will you still do it? No, you won't. And then he says, there are people that are following God's way just to avoid punishment. This kind of, you know, eternal dark hole. They don't want to end up there. So that's why they follow God. But that's also double-mindedness because if that punishment leaves, then you have no reason to follow. It's the idea of like, okay, listen, we're going to get married, Bethany and I, who if we're going to be 17 years in June, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. You're like, how can a man with a mustache be that old? I don't even know. Uh, It's like, okay, we're going to do our marriage vows, and then we get up there, and it's like, okay, through sickness, actually, no, we're not going to do it through sickness, because if you're sick, then we're not getting, oh, through health, yes, through not sickness, but in health, right, in poverty, and lack, and in riches, no, let's just get out the poverty and lack thing, that's being double-minded, and we're sold to Christianity that it's like, it's all for you, and it's all for your benefit, what if you were to receive zero benefit in this earth, in this life? What if you followed God because it's right and righteous and Jesus gave his life for you and that was sufficient? But it's like, okay, I don't see the prize yet, God, therefore I'm out of the game. Because you've been double-minded and you've been pursuing the prize and not pursuing God. It's like, oh man, bad stuff is happening in my life. I'm out, God, because you've been following God on the hopes that bad stuff won't happen. God never promises that bad stuff won't happen. We had a horrific cancer loss in February of our nephew, um, Finney, and it's been tragic. And we fasted and we prayed and we asked God to heal the baby and he decided not to in his sovereignty, and we have to deal with it. And it's not fun. It's horrible. And Bethany still cries at least once a week, if not more, and the kids are still upset about it. And my brother and sister-in-law are still getting smashed upon the rocks. God doesn't promise us perfection or ease or that every problem would go away. If that's what we were hinging our salvation on, we would be double-minded, tossed about by the waves of the sea. I get what I want and I don't get what I don't want or else I'm out of this thing. And that's the kind of life that Saul is living here. He's like, I don't like this David guy coming to take what's mine my kingdom, my rule, my reign, what's obligated to me, what God promised to me, what the prophets prophesied about. This guy's taking what's mine. And because he's taking what's mine, Saul becomes double-minded, and he's not following God's way anymore. He's motivated, and he's uh, pursued by his emotion, and his emotion is all over the place. And emotion is a good thing. We're an emotional church. We raise our hands. Somebody was had a tear shed. I saw one of you guys back there with a tear shed during worship. We like emotion. God gave it to us as a gift. This idea that our Christianity is supposed to be entirely cerebral is nonsense, right? God made us. He made our mind. He made our will. He made our emotion. And all of that being is supposed to be incorporated into our life with God, not just the part that we think is the best. But emotion is never supposed to drive the car. It's a passenger, not the driver. When it's the driver, and makes decisions, and those decisions will change day in and day out. And if we become Christians that are primarily motivated by emotion, we will also be double-minded and washed away like the sea on the seashore. And we've seen uh, churches really come and go in this season, especially in the last 10 or 15 years, that the primary driver is sensory experience, senses, the emotions, right? What attaches with me feeling good in the moment. And again, That's not bad, but it cannot be primary. Primary must be the commitment that I make with God in faith, just like Abraham, the archetype of the faith walk that says, God, I believe in you. I believe in the call you've made independent of what happens. If it takes me 40 years to get a son, I don't care. I believe God. It says this about Abraham when he's offering up his son, almost offering up his son as a sacrifice, it said, he believed God was so good that even if his son died, he would raise him from the dead. Isn't that incredible? Independence, God was going to be faithful. Okay, so I just was thinking about double-mindedness in our society, and I don't know, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm not going to spend too much time here, but, you know, we have um, marriages that are there's like a 50% divorce rate. It's actually going down. The divorce rate is going down in the United States because less and less people want to get married because they think marriage is a total disaster because it has been. And so in 1969, uh, we passed no fault divorce in California. This is incredible to me. In 1967, we had this summer called the summer of love, right? And then in 69, we had the first state that passed no fault divorce. Isn't it bizarre that the world's summer of love ends in divorce? Like the secular model of the summer of love ends in divorce, and then no-fault divorce begins to sweep across the nation, starting in 1965, and then the divorce rate goes from about 30% in the United States to 50% in, in 10 to 15 years. By the time 1980 comes, the divorce rate is at... 1983, the divorce rate is at 53% in the United States within 10 years. And we just are double-minded we just believe that we're not committed to this thing for all of time. As Americans, we think we can hop in and out of this contract. Matthew chapter 19, it says this, and the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, it says, he answered, have you not read that he from the beginning created them and made them male and female? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is this incredible mystical experience that Paul talks about. He says this is one of the greatest mysteries of all the human experience, that a husband and wife come together and they become one unified being. Of course, we don't believe in that because we're materialistic. We don't believe that we become one being anymore. We believe that we're just kind of a bungle of atoms that kind of bang into each other late night after the club and then we go home our separate ways. We don't believe there's a mystical union that God actually joins people together. We've forgotten that. Verse 6. It says, so they are no longer two flesh, but they become one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse 7. And he said to him, Uh, this is the Pharisees. They start questioning Jesus. They say, then why did Moses allow for a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. Moses allowed for divorce in the scripture in the Old Testament because you guys are so mean to each other. (laughs) And he said to them... But it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus is saying that was never God's intention. God's intention was never coming together and joining this incredible experience and then being torn asunder so hearts are in shreds and then they become cauterized and they become hard and then you can have a sexual experience and it doesn't affect you because your heart has been torn so many times. It's layered by scar tissue. Verse 10, and the disciples said, if this is the case of a man with um, his wife, it's better not to... Oh, let me go back. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said, if this is such the case uh, with his wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to, to hear this receive it. Eunuchs are people that can't copulate. They can't be joined in sexual union one with another. And um, Jesus is like, for those of you who actually think this is too hard, you can be committed to the kingdom of heaven for the rest of your life. And you don't have to live in this kind of sacrificial marriage because it is actually hard, because it's actually challenging. So this is a pattern that I love here in Matthew chapter 19, and it goes like this. It's a three-part pattern. It says that first that God created human beings, male and female. And then it says he joins them together in sexual union, one to another, and they're joined eternally. And then third, it says that this union is, is a union that God ordains, and so it needs to stay permanent. Marriage needs to stay permanent. And so incredibly, in our society, we've... We've destroyed these things in reverse order. First of all, we've said the marriage union doesn't need to be permanent. It's like it's just a contract, and if it's not working out for both of us, what's the what's the big deal? I don't understand what what the problem is. If I just want to move on, and then the second thing is that they were supposed to be man and woman were supposed to be joined in sexual union, um, and that that union, which we call marriage, was basically destroyed in 2008. Uh, when we allowed for homosexual marriage in our country. Now, you may not know this, but um, before 1900, there was no word, the word homosexual didn't actually even exist in language. You probably don't know that. You probably think it's been around since the Roman era. That is not correct. It has not. It was created by a psychologist in 1898, and then it was brought into uh, common language in 1908, and then proliferated through society. The idea that directly, brought together the sexual identity, the the sexual act, and the personal identity were joined through what's called sexual psychology. Uh, And it's not that human beings didn't behave in all kinds of uh, anomalous ways for the history of mankind, of course they did, but the idea that I was identified with this and I could be no other way, this fiction was not foisted upon mankind until really the last 75 years. Um, so we first got rid of no-fault divorce, and then we said the union doesn't need to be between man and woman anymore. Um, and we have, as you're f- familiar with, the, the 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 flag of gay pride. And so it's not only do we think, you know, the Bible says this is a bad idea. Not only do we think homosexuality is not a bad idea, we think it's great. And we actually wave a flag about it because we want to, we want to like, w- when you wave a flag, you're basically, you're basically like, showing something like this in the air, which is the idea of the heavens, you're saying, hey, this great idea should be lifted up. It should be exalted. This is the flag. This is my team. This is whatever it is. We're exalting them and lifting up. This scripture says this, says Philippians 319. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And I just think, wow, what an incredible idea that God knew what we were going to do. We were going to take the things that are shameful and actually make those the things of our glory and actually celebrate and shoot fireworks and wave flags about things that we should actually be ashamed of. And I don't know if you've seen that with divorce parties. The new wave that's happening is abortion parties, And people are having abortion parties. And you can get abortion party kits with chopped up babies like gummy versions and hats and shirts and all of this kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, this is crazy. No, it's not crazy. God said this is what human beings do. They literally glory in the things they should be ashamed about. It's the way to best cauterize pain in your life. It's the way to best do away with the conscience so you don't have that banging, barraging conscience anymore. I love this phrase, their God is their belly. I'm like, man, that's, that's not fun. Like, they think about what they're going to eat all the time. They sacrifice things for what they're going to eat. Like, what do you do for a God? You sacrifice, you think about it, you make it central in your life. All of these things that, you know, we New Yorkers with the best restaurants in the world, often we have people that just, they're living their life worshiping their physical Sensations. Remember earlier, that's why I said we have churches that are built upon sensory experience? It's like, hey, everybody, like, you love sensory experience? We're just going to, like, do everything sensory experience and slap a Jesus sticker on it. It's like, it's not going to work because those people that are getting A pluses in sensory experiences often sin in areas of sensory experience, i.e. sexuality, i.e. the things that make my senses feel really good. And so we have to be on guard against those things because they're not good for us. They destroy us, and God wants our good. He wants us to flourish. He has beauty planned for us. That's why he put us in this Garden of Eden. I I wrote in my book, um, it says this, their glory is in their shame. It's literally the the pride flag. It is an affirmative statement that declares, I will not be ashamed of dislodging myself from God's order. In fact... I will wave my anarchy against heaven itself with a token in my hand. A flag to declare the darkness, a pendant to shout down eternal order, a banner to curse the heavens. And identity slips further away. The image of God morphs on the continuum into the spiritless things. It's a super happy, uplifting book. It's on the fire called Good Kills, if you're interested in it. But the truth is that now we have um, Charlie, my buddy Charlie Kirk, he likes to s- cite this statement that 40% of, of uh, high schoolers are identifying as LGBTQ right now. The, there was a study done in Arizona, Texas, or Arizona Christian University that um, showed those numbers and that's happening all over the country. It's not it's not a, a weird Arizona school, it's happening everywhere. And I was actually thinking today, um, that's exactly right. Uh, at some point, it will not be 40% that identifies on the spectrum, it will be everyone. And it will be, you're like, David, let's get out of here. Listen, when you take fire out of the fireplace, out of the bounds of a protective region where it grows and blesses people, it spreads everywhere. You can't stop it. It doesn't spread. And that's why in Genesis 19 and Judges 19, it says this, it says, every man and boy went out to have sexual union with the the guests, both. You can read those stories in Genesis chapter 19 and Judges chapter 19. And the idea is that once sexual disorientation comes to a society, it doesn't just stop, it spreads through the whole society. And so of course the numbers go from 1% to 2%, to 40%, to 80%, to now if you don't consider yourself on the scale, you actually are a bigot. If the scale is fluid at all, the to- at all times, how dare you think that you're some kind of fixed conservative orientation? That's probably a bigoted position. You should be open to the possibility that in the future you'll have a very different position. And let's just start plugging that into the Disney Channel right now, into our children, and to children's shows and movies, and it'll be totally fine. We'll all be totally fine. Society'll be great. You know what's great about this? About this, this, um, <laughs> like as as the church, we can see God's order, and when we look at the world, we can see disorder, and then we see suicide rates, death. We actually, right now, we have the highest um, drugged. population for women between the ages of 25 and 40 ever in the history of our nation, mostly because we have these, we've been telling women, like, you don't need to do marriage or family or kids. Like, that's stupid. Get a career first. Like, save some money first. Get a retirement fund first. It's only going to take you until you're 38 to get your finances in order. And then get married. And then you've already decided how you want to live and who you want to be. And guess how fun that is to meet a person that fits your exact demands at 38. Guess how, guess how fun that is. It's much, much, much harder. You're much more flexible at that age. You're much more willing to deal with a person. Yeah, literally flexible. You're much, more, you're much less willing to deal with a person. And the, 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 the world's like, yeah, don't get married too early. And actually the statistics tell us the earlier you get, you mar- you get married, the more you're likely to stay married. Oh, it's exactly the opposite? Oh, what a, what a coincidence. What a phenomenal coincidence. Oh, like the scripture that says, blessed are they, but it says this, it says, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of children when he is young. He will not be ashamed in the gates of the city. And even in churches right now, it's like, whatever, not while you're young, wait for 15 years until you have children. Wait for 20 years. 70-year-old dads, and I don't mean, I don't mean to bang on you if you're a 70-year-old dad, please, you know, keep having kids, I guess, but um, I do mean to not avoid the truth of God's word and pretend it doesn't exist, just because our culture doesn't look like that, and so, so this is the order, I said, Jesus says, you know, I made them male and female, I joined them in this male and female sexual union, and this is permanent, and we've like, reverse order, no permanence, it doesn't matter if it's male or female, and then, uh, it doesn't matter if the human union is hetero or homosexual. And then finally, I made them male and female. We literally live in a culture where we don't know what male or female even is anymore. We had the Supreme Court justice say three weeks ago when she was asked, "What is a female?" She said, "I don't know. I'm not a biologist." Now it's like, is it funny? Is it silly? Like whatever. It's literally the reverse order of God's way. First, marriage and union, permanence. Second, that marriage being the way that God intended it. Third, the coming together was by these two peoples that he made, he decided and determined. And when we destroy the pinions of God's moral order, of course it's the case that we don't know what's a man or a woman. Of course we as a society are completely double-minded. We don't know. We've lost our way, we've lost our orientation, we've lost our order to the universe and the world around us, and we come to faith with this whole body of non-God ways, and then we try to incorporate God's ways into our life, and we're like, I'm just gonna try to kinda work these both out at the same time. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, and that's why James says, you can't come to God's kingdom and have this whole body, this whole corpus of doubt, it won't work. You can't live in a double-minded way. Let that man understand, reckon that he should get nothing at all from God. The incredible thing about our God is that even though we live in this totally crazy upside-down world that seems to disdain life itself, the good thing is that in Jesus Christ, he makes us brand-new creations. And that's what we fundamentally believe. So independent of what you think orientation is or isn't, it doesn't matter. In Christ, your everything changes. Your fundamental identity changes into a child of God. Um, I'm out of time here, but um, worship team, can you come up? I, I, I have two pages of notes left, but I really wanna talk about this thing real quick, which is how do we not become double-minded? Jesus said this in Matthew 6:22. It's a very, very weird scripture. If you've ever read this scripture and really wondered, like, get down, dig into it, what it's about, um, it's you know that it's strange. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is this darkness? And this is... So, think about this scripture in the context of being double minded. And actually, interesting enough, having two eyes. So, eyes are these organs that filter out, like they actually filter light. And, you know, there's this membrane inside that light passes through. And the eye sends information into our brain, right, through an electrical impulse that tells us about the world around us. So the eye is filtering, this you know, the reflection of light bouncing around the walls in different wavelengths tells us how far- Our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know Him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.